It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is where we bring together uh, award-winning journalists from all over the East End to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website's 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. My co-host is Bill Sutton. Uh, he is the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good panel today. We have uh, Chrissy Sampson, who is the Deputy Managing Editor at the East Hampton Star. Hey, Chrissy. Good morning. Hi. Good to have you back. Uh, we have Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. How you doing? And we have Catherine Manu, who uh, I will be referring to as Georgie because most of us know her that way. Uh, she is the publisher and an editor at the Express News Group, which makes her the boss. Hey, boss. Ah, not really. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Good to have you on this week. So we, we want to talk about COVID because that's what we always talk about. Um, we look forward to the day when we can have a behind the headlines where we're not talking about COVID. That day isn't here yet, but numbers seem to be starting to improve. This is something that a lot of experts predicted was that after the holiday surge, uh, we might see numbers start to drop a bit. Um, and the conversation um, this week has started to turn back to the subject of masks in schools. And uh, I know, Georgie, one of the things we learned this week was that there is a petition in the Sag Harbor School District uh, to try and get the district to reconsider its policy. Uh, and that's something I think that's happening across several school districts in the region. But Georgie, that's uh, some parents have circulated that petition, right? Yeah, so it's a petition that started circulating on change.org earlier this week. It's called Mask Choice for School. And as of Wednesday afternoon, it had 137 signatures. I'm not sure all of those signatures are actually parents within the school district because obviously anybody can sign a change.org petition. Um, but still, it was definitely gaining traction. And it's basically seeking to have the district and the Board of Education reverse its position on requiring masks for children in schools. Um, so as of right now, the school district remains steadfast in its decision to keep children masked. And um, despite a recent ruling and then, you know, a stay that happened, and we can get into that in a minute, um, all of the school districts on the East End are continuing to demand that um, students wear masks to school. You know, what's yeah, interesting is that, um, you know, when the last year, when the high risk sports started, you know, last winter, um, Jeff Nichols at Sag Harbor, they were one of the most conservative approaches to high risk sports. They held fast and did not allow those high risk, risk sports like basketball to get off the ground because the COVID numbers were still high. So I feel like Sag Harbor is is one of the most conservative, playing it safe, erring on the side of caution districts, you know? It's, that's totally correct, Chrissy. In fact, Sag Harbor was the first school district to go remote in 2020 when COVID, um, you know, emerged in New York. And I think they went remote two or three days before the rest of the school districts, you know, quickly followed suit and they did mm -hmm. not have basketball last season. They, you know, this year they are engaged in all of those sports. Um, cause as Jeff Nichols, the superintendent of that school noted, you know, we're in a different place now in 2022 than we were last year, you know, with vaccination rates, um, particularly high on the South Fork. Um, they felt comfortable with that, but still not comfortable with children um, not wearing masks. Something that Jeff noted is that um, children wearing masks was actually a part of their reopening plan, which all of the school districts had to um, submit to the state, you know, to show how they could safely reopen. So, you know, even if a judge ruled that, um, you know, masks are not mandated, you know, from his perspective, their reopening plan states that children will wear masks to promote safety. So I mean, let's, let's 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 look at at that ruling. So I mean, so so a lot of a lot of uh, you know the the stuff that's going on in the school districts this week. There were protests in in Riverhead and you know and and other spots. So 
So on, I think it was on, on Monday, it was a, a state Supreme Court justice in, in Nassau County had ruled that the state's mask mandate was um, was was unconstitutional, I guess. I don't know if it was unconstitutional, but unenforceable, a shot, shot, unenforceable shot down the mandate. But but it, it made no decision on, on whether the masks were effective or whether, you know, the, that they were good to prevent the spread or that they should be in the schools. It, it was about how the mandate was was, um, you know, was put forward by the governor that that the ruling said that it should have been legislation. It should have been, um, you know, the state legislature passing this mandate rather than the governor and the state health department, um, you know, making this this mandate. And then I think a lot of people, a lot of these these parents who have been anti masking uh, positions for for a long time, jumped on that ruling and said, see, we told you that that there shouldn't be masks in school. It, it wasn't judging the masks in schools it was it was judging how the mandate was first first came about and how it was was enforced um so, so i think it's important to to point that out that there was no clear decision that said you know students shouldn't be wearing masks it was about the mandate mm-hmm. itself in fact if i may uh, you know the the judge went out of his way to say that this was not a decision on the efficacy of masks right. and um i mean you know, people have been throwing around this like they, they ruled it was unconstitutional. And when people say that, when you hear that, you think immediately of the U.S. Constitution. Right. And, you know, it's my, you're infringing on my my freedom, my my whatever, you know, because um, that's what people think of. But what the judge was talking about was co- uh, complying with the state constitutional procedures right. for adopting regulations. All regulations have to be authorized by statute. The executive branch absent an executive order in an emergency, which has been limited by the legislature now in New York, but um, can't the executive branch can't adopt regulations unless authorized by legislation. And right. that judge ruled that that mandate was not authorized by legislation. Um, I think that state's position is that it was authorized by um, uh, the public. It's authorized by the public health law. You know, the governor said, well, if the public health law doesn't authorize the health commissioner to issue regulations during a public health emergency, what does it do? You know, so I think that's probably what this is going to um, hinge on. And we'll we'll hear the appellate division's ruling, you know, soon um, because the state appealed that ruling right away. Got to stay and uh, we'll know the results of another hearing on that. That's that's being held. So. Christy, I, I, you know, it seems to me that that we need to get this figured out, if not on the fly, we, we, we need to get this figured out for the next, uh, you know, outbreak that we're going to have at some point, whether it's COVID or some other disease, we're going to have this. Oh, my gosh. This is likely to come up again. But I feel like I feel like it's raised some real, real interesting questions about uh, I mean, I think these are legitimate questions that we need to get answered is who gets to decide these kinds of policies and how should they be decided? But let me ask you this, Chrissy, how's it, how does it appear, at least anecdotally, to be working in schools, uh, the mask mandate? Are we seeing results in, in local schools? I mean, how are the numbers lately? I know in East Hampton School District, they went three straight days. Uh, you know, East Hampton High School actually went three straight days this week with zero COVID cases among students and staff. And mm-hmm. that is a dramatic you know, that's that's no COVID there. I mean, there was a period of time when that was like 20, 30 cases at the high school alone, you know, and relative to its size, East Hampton has had proportionately more, or as you say, disproportionately more COVID cases. And they've been, you know, than other school districts, even larger ones, you know, per student, you know, per capita. But like, it's just like a, you know, common sense to me that, you know, if if you're wearing masks, you know, there were districts that didn't have high rates of like COVID who, um, you know, there before the Thanksgiving break, were still seeing a jump, jump even before Thanksgiving, you know, like a couple of family get get togethers around the holidays. And suddenly you have 30, 40 kids a day, you know, and but yeah, you, I mean, that's what we saw was that in school, like when our children returned to school in 2020, 
Um, and there was a lot of concern about what was going to happen. What we discovered was that they weren't getting COVID in school. And one of the reasons that they weren't getting COVID in school, you know, healthcare professionals have said is because that was one place where masks were mandated indoors. And, and so that spread just was not occurring where it was happening was when, you know, you have your out of town relatives coming over for a big family function. And that is where you were seeing COVID spread. Yeah, that's how I got COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Just play devil's advocate, though, too. I, I mean, that, that that'll, you know, um, masks or not or early on, you know, before Omicron, kids weren't getting a lot yeah, of COVID because they're kids and, and they weren't getting real sick if they got COVID and, and all that. So you can't yeah, I mean, you can't prove a negative. Would, would there have been more spread without masks? I, I think the, the science probably says so, but I, I don't think that you can you can prove that. I mean, there weren't you can't compare one district that didn't have masks to one that did because no districts didn't have masks. So, you know, we so we believe the masks were helping and and the science kind of says the masks were helping. But I know, Joe, you you were reading um, some some studies, um, you know, in some some articles this week that that was it was saying that maybe the masks weren't as effective as, as they were being promoted in school. Yeah, we right? had this conversation in the newsroom this week. I, you know, I've been very much in favor of of being as careful as we possibly can. Sure. But I think it's interesting that there's been a conversation that began recently. And, and the article that, that I was talking about was in The Atlantic this week. And it was some very prominent. And, and you know, we're not talking about Joe Rogan here. We're talking about, mm. you know, infectious disease experts and, and emergency uh, emergency room uh, leaders. And their point is that the United States has actually adopted the um, CDC guidelines, which suggest that all kids two and up have to be masked or should be masked, along with all teachers, all staff, all visitors. It's a very um, complete uh, recommendation on masks. A lot of other countries have adopted the World Health Organization guidelines, which say mm -hmm. that for five and under, that there are risks of, of causing setbacks in development and some other issues that for five and under, they shouldn't be recommended. And even for six to 11, they shouldn't be mandated. It should be encouraged, but not mandated. I, my point this week has been, I think both sides are always saying, follow the science. And I'm, I fear that neither side really follows the science when it doesn't meet the narrative. And, and I, I think that, when this now, and, and I think, by the way, the all of the articles I've read have said this is not a moment to rethink this policy. We're still in the middle of this o Omicron wave, and now's not the time to do it. But we should have a discussion moving forward about how we deal with masks and kids. Um, I think there was a narrative early in the pandemic that said there was no risk for kids, young kids, to be wearing masks in school. So why not have them do it? I think there are some studies that suggest. Uh, that, that no risk is not really accurate. And there, there can be some developmental impacts from that. And just, I, I think the, the point has been, uh, the point of the Atlantic article was there really haven't been sweeping studies yet of the efficacy of masks with young kids in schools. We can only go by anecdotal evidence. So um, and I think it's I've, impossible to say that there hasn't been an impact on children, especially young children wearing masks. I happen to have a seven year old son and, you know, he definitely has, um, you know, been impacted by wearing a mask in terms of, you know, how he is communicating with his teacher and with his peers in the classroom. It's a completely different experience when you can't see half your face, you know, yeah. and 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 I I really look forward to the day when he doesn't have to wear a mask to school. And I and I do hope that that day is sooner rather than later. I, I I'm very comfortable sending him to school with a mask right now. Um, you know, as Chrissy noted, we just went through three days of East Hampton High School not having a case. But for the last month, I feel like I've never known so many people and so many children that have gotten COVID in two years. Um, I mean, it's just been so rampant as recently. Um, oh, sorry, Joey. No, 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 please go ahead. 
I was going to say, as recently as last Tuesday, not uh, not like this week, but the previous Tuesday, Dr. Gail Schoenfeld of East End Pediatrics was saying schools are one of the safest places for kids to be. If they're wearing masks still, you know, the teachers are are reminding them gently to keep their masks over their nose. All the kids, their whereabouts are known like all the time, you know, because you're in class or you're in a special or something like that. So like, it's easy to, I know they're not really doing contact tracing anymore to the same level, but like, you know, it's just, um, it's still one of the safest places for kids to be. Denise, I, I, I noticed in, in the, your article um, this week regarding the protest, um, your reporter Alec had talked to one high school student um, who was part of the protest um, who was objecting to having to wear a mask and feeling like she was being treated differently um, in school and being being punished for wearing her mask over her mouth and not her nose and 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 all that and um, I think school officials weren't real re responsive to you about how students who don't want to wear masks are refusing to wear masks are being treated but I thought that was really really an interesting part of the article to have that student's perspective in there. Yeah, I mean, she she um, was one of the students who, after the judge's ruling and despite uh, a robocall that went out saying that Riverhead's mask mandate, because Riverhead also made it part of its reopening plan. Um, so in spite of the um, the robocall that said, hey, we still have this in Riverhead, it's not being lifted. Um, a lot of parents uh, or a, a number of parents anyway, sent kids to school without masks and on, on Tuesday morning. And um you know, and by the way, she, Denise, she just, to, just, just to clarify, that court ruling was about the state mandate, but it doesn't really yes. cover local mandates, right? Local, no, the, no, local districts still yeah. have the option. That's right. correct. And and that's why Riverhead said, you know, we still have this mandate regardless of what the judge's ruling is, because it's part of our reopening plan. And, um, you know, we have, until we reconsider that, if we reconsider that, it stays. And, um, you know, parents have been there, have been you know, allowed uh you know, vocal, let's say, contingent of parents who have been opposed to that and asking for it to be lifted, like at every single board meeting. Um, and they were involved in, in that protest. But anyway, this student said that students that went to school uh, unmasked were segregated from the other students, put in a conference room or separate classroom. And um, parents were saying that, you know, they were not being educated as a result of that. And they were extremely upset about that. Um, and the superintendent said to us, you know, they're being appropriately, you know, respectfully treated and educated and, you know, that he denied that. Um, so there were two protests, uh, one outside the district office on uh, Tuesday and then yesterday outside the high school, which was a bigger protest. It was, um, I don't know, if not necessarily organized, but promoted by the Long Island Loud Majority Group, which uh, is a group that has been involved in these different caravans uh, driving around uh, Suffolk County. And um, they, you know, there were quite a number of people there, but at least 50 people there with flags and things and signs. Um, there was also a couple of students across the street who were um, kind of heckling and um you know, counter protesting, they said, because they said, you know, students inside the building really don't care about this. Like they're wearing the mask. It's not a big deal. We, you know, go away. You, kind go. Of, you know, um, the, the irony, the, the irony the is. <laughs> I was I'm just going to say the political, I'm not going to be able to say that word. I always struggle with politicization yeah. of this, of this issue. I feel like in, in 20 years, there are going to be a whole lot of books written about how oh, yeah. this this all went down. It's just it's just amazing that we can't have a real conversation about it. There is so much misinformation floating yeah. around and so many emotions uh, that it's that it's just counterproductive to even try and talk about it. It's unfortunate. I mean, it's certainly a political football, Joe. Uh, not to demean your favorite sport, but like you know. <laughs> And, and, you know, the politicians are very glad to be tossing it around all the time. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you get all the press releases. It's constant. So um, I just, you know, but the, the ironic thing was one of the students who uh, was counter protesting was a senior at Riverhead High School is a son of a very, very vocal um, anti-mask, anti-vax, uh, take zinc and hydrochloroquine uh, guy who's just outspoken all the time uh 
he um, he actually posted a, a picture of Joseph Goebbels um, on Riverhead oh. Local's Facebook page calling me a propagandist for the government because I was reporting with the CDC. Anyway, um, and his son <laughs> was was one of the kids who was like, you know, this really isn't that big a deal. No, no way. Yeah. You know, people wear masks is not a big deal. I mean, I, you I mean know, that's the truth with the kids. I mean, both of my children, seven and 13, the masks don't bother them, even though, as I said before, I do think my younger child, you know, has probably missed out on certain things as a result of having to wear it during first and second grade. Um, you know, they're not bothered by it. Half the time we are halfway home in the car and I look in the rear view mirror and I'm like, Charlie, you know, you can take your mask off, dude. It's okay. We're in the car now. And he's like, I just totally forgot I was wearing it, you know, <laughs> so I, I think it, it's not as big of a deal for most of the kids um, as it is for us adults debating it. Kids, kids are so resilient. Yeah, it's interesting to see I, I, whether the uh, the recent court ruling this week gets overturned at the next level. Uh, and again, I think it's a it's I think there is a legitimate question here at the heart of this that we need to get resolved is you know, who gets to make these decisions about mandates and, and under what circumstances. But uh, it's hard to do that on the fly when you're dealing with the crisis uh, as it's happening. So uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, Joe Shaw, I am the co-host along with Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Chrissy Sampson of the Stampton Star, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and our own uh, Catherine Manu of the Express News Group. So, um, Chrissy, I want to talk about East Hampton Airport. Uh, the, the East Hampton Town Board went through with uh, the decision this past week to uh, do what I think is actually a very clever maneuver to close the airport for three days at the end of, of February and reopen in early March as a private airport, no longer a, a public use airport. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that's going to work. What, what's the next step for the town board now? So the next step for the town board is actually creating that new framework um, to how to outline how advanced clearance will be required before um, a plane or helicopter can use the airport. Um, and so and it all has to be done, um, you know, under a secret, the New York State Environmental Quality Review Act. <laughs> <laughs> which does is a mouthful matter, to say. Does it matter that the airport already exists? And I mean, by closing the airport and then reopening, are they starting from scratch with, with a, with an environmental review or is it, there's already an airport there and how did, how does that work? I'm unclear on that, to be honest. Yeah, Joe. That, that, that seems to be an open question. Yeah. And the other open question to me is, you know, I think it's, is it only a matter of time before somebody decides to sue? like yeah. litigation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like I'm surprised it hasn't happened already or maybe it is brewing and I don't know about it yet. But like oh they're, oh, they're typing up the suits right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're waiting for <laughs> <first Preparing first. laughs> One of the concerns with the pilots was that uh they were concerned that the temporary closure could open the door to to something longer term if there are lawsuits filed, right? That was something that the pilots have said. Yeah, and then another one of the pilots and the other concern is, um, you know, about Montauk, because there's an airport there that's privately owned and what the impact is going to be there. And then um, you had Southampton Town weighing in Tommy John's Givoni, one of the council members there, you know, was congratulating East Hampton's town board, you know, for making a challenging decision, you know, so he was kind of lauding it. But then it's. The, the narrative turned again to the people who want to keep it open, you know, closing the airport will not only further harm the economy, delay emergency responders, but that's all been studied already. Am I am I wrong in that? Like, you know, the economic impacts aren't as pronounced or as, you know, as some of the there were competing opponents. studies, right? Depending yeah, on, on who commissioned studies. the study, that certainly the, the pilots, uh, the study that the pilots commission showed uh, a huge, uh, you know, economic impact as opposed to the one, uh, you know, other ones that, that showed less of an impact. So I, I think time will, will, will tell with that, but they're not, but I think those, those studies were focused on, on a permanent shutdown of the airport, which we're not going to see. So, right. Right. 
Um, I'm curious. And- I'm curious, Chrissy. The um, the what what can the town board actually do in making new rules? Will they be able to change routes? Will they be able? To, so you you say every air every aircraft that's going to land at the airport needs to have prior permission to do that. So they can, in theory, much more significantly control the flow uh, of traffic coming into the airport. But can the they also, yeah, the volume, can can they actually uh, work on the routes too? Because that's clearly where the, the issue has been on the North Fork and in some of the communities in Southampton town uh, with the helicopter traffic and the routes they're taking into the airport. Can the town do anything about those routes? I think it's too early to tell on that, Joe. Um, But I do know that one of the differences this time around is that, you know, the last time when the when the town tried to enact curfews and then, you know, that was declared like, you know, they couldn't they couldn't do curfews and and that sort of limitation. They were still accepting FAA funding. Am I correct at that time? Yes. And so now that is expired. Right. A public so, use airport, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So it had been the FAA that had come in and said those curfews were were illegal according to FAA rules. And now they're not subject to those FAA rules anymore. So they could certainly do all that again. But I yeah. but I think the routes into the airport are not something that the town and the airport can control because that really you only have control over a certain amount of airspace around your airport in terms of like what aircraft you can allow in. Um, The routes that have been used are recommended routes. um, And so the pilots follow them. This is like the North Shore route that you're talking about that's impacted the North Fork. Um, I I think that I think the hope is that if you see a reduced number of flights into the East Hampton Airport, the impact on those communities, uh, you know, underneath that route will just automatically be lessened. And of course, what we're really talking about and what the town board is really talking about is trying to reduce the number of commercial helicopter flights into right. the airport. They're not talking about trying to limit the number of, you know, small, um, you know, airplanes that have traditionally used the airport and, you know, have hangars at the airport. Um, they're not even really talking about like, you know, huge jet limitations right now. The biggest impact has been the growth of the commercial helicopter flights, um, you know, which it used to be a very expensive thing to charter a helicopter from New York to the Hamptons. And, you know, when you had Blade come out and then now it's what, 200 bucks to get a seat on one of those flights, it's, you know, within reaching distance for a lot of people economically. And so it's a very popular service. So I think that that's really the focus of the board is trying to reduce those flights in and out. But I don't think they can control routes into the airport. There's also a safety, safety I, I think matter, that, right? I think that's all correct, Georgie. But but you have to think, though, too, that by controlling the number of flights that could come in, if uh, helicopter operator A is using a route that's very, you know, that's disturbing a lot of people, that the, the town board could theoretically, um, wink, wink, uh, apply some pressure to yeah. operator A and say, because you're using that route, we're not going to let any of your aircraft come in, you know, and, and land at the airport. However, if you used route B, um, mm. we would allow a certain number to, to come in. So I, I think you could apply some pressure that way. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, Chrissy, I, I stepped on, I stepped on what you were saying. I'm Go ahead. I forgot my point. I'm oh, yeah, actually, Chrissy, you're, I think what you were saying was there's a safety issue too. And I find this interesting that, one of the things that seems to frustrate people is, well, why can't the helicopters just come into the airport at a higher altitude where there's less of a noise impact? But from from what I've been told, that actually raises safety questions right. that, that helicopters don't operate real well vertically. They 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 don't they're not it's not real safe for a helicopter to go up and down, straight up and down. They need to come into the airport, you know on a more traditional uh, path. So, but what, what I'm curious to see, Chrissy, is the reduced number of aircraft should have less impact, as Georgie said, but it's not going to satisfy the people who are in those flight paths. No. There's still going to be helicopters. There's still going to be flying overhead uh, and there's still going to be the noise impact. Yeah, that's, 
you know, darned if you do, darned if you don't. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, Michael Wright, our senior reporter who's been covering the East Hampton Airport and East Hampton Town, you know, he said basically this decision by the East Hampton Town Board, like nobody was happy <laughs> with it. And maybe that meant that they were doing the right thing because the people who, you know, want the airport completely closed were unsatisfied and the pilots were unsatisfied, um, you know, so. Maybe they sort of meet in the middle a little bit. <laughs> Solomon-like. Isn't that sort of the definition of compromise when no one walks away happy? <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. We, the whole art of compromise has been lost, I think, um, in, in the last couple of years. Uh, I think it, I, I actually think it was a really smart, I don't know who came up with the idea of doing what they're doing, but it really is. And we had an editorial this week to talk about the fact that it's sort of like hitting the reset button. I think the airport got away from the town. Uh, because of all the factors that they can't control. The the helicopter traffic just grew immense. And it's a chance to just sort of restart and uh, and and start over again and draw new rules. Of course, drawing new rules is going to be a whole different uh, you know challenge. They're gonna they're gonna have to do that well and it's gonna be something to keep an eye on in the next couple of months, that's for sure. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton. And with us today are Chrissy Sampson of the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Georgie Benu, our own publisher at the Express News Group. Um, I want to go to Denise and I want to talk about uh, open meetings law, which is, you know, sometimes... I just I, I want to make clear to people how important these fights are, and I think they matter so much to journalists and not so much to the public. When <laughs> when when the flip side should be you know, it should be exactly the opposite. Um, but talk a little bit about what what you went through this week, and it was with Riverhead uh, Town. Is that who the fight was with? Uh, it, yeah, I mean it, it wasn't really a fight, but I mean. <laughs> Uh, but the yeah, the Riverhead Town Board uh, work session, which customarily is held on Thursday mornings at 10 a.m., was without warning or notice, I should say, um, changed to Wednesday at 10 a.m. And uh, uh, the, the folks at the News Review and I, we found out about it uh, when the deputy supervisor sent the agenda out for the meeting the next morning at five o'clock on Tuesday afternoon. Um, and, you know, our reaction was the same. It was like, oh, is this a mistake? It says Wednesday's, you know, work session. Uh, but it wasn't a mistake. And I subsequently learned from uh, questioning the town clerk that uh, the supervisor's office had sent an email around to staff internally in town halls on January 18th saying that hmm. the meeting date was changed. Um, whether they forgot to do the notice or what, I'm not sure, but they... Uh, offered as the reason that because these meetings are not set by town board resolution, they don't have to give notice of, of changes to them, really? uh, which is, that's basically just made up whole cloth like that, you know, that's <laughs> nowhere. In and so uh, we, we did an editorial about it uh, this week because it, because it is important because it's sure. important to have access to the government to watch um, what they do and um, ask questions. And, um, you know, I'm sure you all feel the same as I do, uh, you know, cannot stand watching, uh, covering meetings by watching them on video. I mean, like, I, you know, it's not the same as going there because you often, I mean, you almost always have to ask questions and get clarifications and, you know, follow up, um, especially when uh, some meetings turn are generally kind of like dog and pony shows. Um, which happens a lot. Um, well, let me so let me play devil's yeah, advocate. Really important. Okay. Let, me, let me play devil's advocate for a second. Um, it's only a work session, Denise. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no action going to be taken at that work session. Uh, so, what's the big deal here? Why should anybody? It's still, it is still a. I mean, you know, it is still a meeting, um, as that is defined, of a public body, as that is defined in in the state New York State Open Meetings Law, and. I mean, I, I guess you could, you know, people could shrug and say, what's the big deal? And I'm sure some people did. But, um, you know, it is a big deal. The public has a right to know and um, they, they have a right to attend and observe. And, you know, there was not an insubstantial agenda 
on the board's plate on Wednesday. Uh, there was the unveiling of uh, a, a new uh, apartment building. And um, although we've known that this was in the works for a while, um, it, nevertheless, it was the first time the developer appeared before the town board, presented his renderings and spoke to the board and answered their questions. And the board had a conversation about um, the growing parking issues that they really not done anything about um, in, in downtown Riverhead, despite approving, um, well, it's going to be up to uh, 512 apartments in the, the downtown district. Um, and they're talking about uh, lifting that, that was a cap in the zoning that was adopted in 20, uh, 2004. And they're talking about lifting that cap. So there may be even more than 500 apartments. Mm. Um, and it's just something that's a, a significant controversy. I mean, uh, both in terms of how downtown looks and um, how it feels to people and um, how um, people are going to, who live there, where are they going to park? Mm. Um, visitors, where are, are visitors and patrons of businesses going to park? Um, they're talking about, you know, a large piece of the southern park, the south parking lot on the water um, being converted to green space, which is a terrific thing, the town square. Um, but again, they're losing parking at a time when they're bringing in, you know, res residential units. And because it's a long story, I won't get into it, but there's a parking district downtown. So uh, developments within the parking district, uh, which was adopted long before there were any, uh, any thought of apartments downtown, do not have to provide off-street parking on their own property. Um, and the way the code does also does not include any requirement currently that they have to pay into a parking fund. So they're just like absorbing all these all these vehicles. So, um, so they could build a five 500 unit apartment building and provide absolutely no parking for it. If they're in the parking district, that's yeah, that's correct. Um, so it's there's no one building that's going to be 500 units, right. but you know, 40 units here, 40 units yeah. there. Pretty soon you're talking some you know real numbers. <laughs> um, so anyway, so they got into that discussion. I mean, you know, the public is not allowed to participate and comment at work sessions anyway. So I guess that's another argument for what's the big deal. But the public has a right to know. And I think, you know, I, I think that public officials who take the oath to uphold the Constitution and start every meeting with a pledge of you know, allegiance to that flag yeah. should follow the law, first and foremost. You know, that's just my opinion. I don't know. But anyway, so we, we wrote a we wrote an editorial about that. And uh you know, hopefully uh, they don't do that. And I think, you know, really when it comes down to it, the open meetings law does, there's nobody to enforce that, you know? I mean, there's no government entity to, to enforce the law. It's up to the people. If you want to enforce the open meeting law, you have to actually sue. <laughs> now, who can do that? So, Georgie, you know. you want to say something? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so to just also weigh in on your devil's advocate um, question about, oh, what's the big deal? It's just a work session. Having covered local government for, you know, over a decade, I found that the work sessions were the most important meetings for me to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. That's when the deliberation occurs. That's when the conversations happen. That's when basically the framework for your legislation is created. So it's they're critical meetings. And while some mm -hmm. boards, they're are certainly not required in work session to have public comment. Um, some boards opt to allow public comment despite it being a work session. Um, and while, you know, and Denise is certainly right, there's, you know, no one necessarily there to enforce open meetings law um, on these boards. That's really our job as journalists. Exactly. That's what I was getting to. The law. It's the there for a reason. The other thing I wanted to say is, um, and, you know, I've covered school boards for, you know, more than a decade, it's not unheard of for a board to shift like adjourn a work session. And if they have a quorum to start a business meeting right? and, and have resolutions at the end of what was essentially advertised as a work session. And, you know, I've, I've had specific examples of that within the last two months, Sure, you know, there was a district here who um, had a work session and then it was a special meeting in the first place, but um, they adopted a resolution to hire a new business official, an interim business official at the end. You know, of course, and, at the end. Yeah. You know, and, and that didn't, and, you know, 
Georgie, Georgie touched on something that I think it's really important to stress for people who might not be familiar with the law, and that is the deliberation. Uh, the law spells out that it's crucial for the public to be able to watch the deliberation of laws, not just the votes. The, the vote to enact, it's crucial to be there for that, but you should be able to watch the sausage being made. Right. That's that's when it matters, and, and, and the public really needs to be there for that, and work sessions is where that happens. By the, by the time they vote on a measure, it's much too late. For, for, the, for the public to to have any kind of meaningful impact. I mean, certainly they're going to have a public hearing and all that. But but if you're unaware of the thinking behind the, the direction the board is going in, the board's vision, that type of thing, how can you make a comment? And, and then by the time, let, let's face it, we've all covered these meetings. By the time they're having public hearings, most of the time, these boards have made up their mind yeah. um, to, to move forward with this legislation and their pro forma going through the public hearing. Um, and sometimes, they, you know, they change their minds and all that. But but it's the beginning of the process that that the public needs to be aware of. I want to just make a, an extended, uh, you know, kind of like a related comment about that is that um, and you had to know that this was coming up at some point from me. School budget season is underway <laughs> and all of those fun. discussions fun, are technically work sessions. Right. You know, yeah. you don't actually have to have like, you know, can I have a motion to open the meeting? Like they just go into it because and, and their work sessions and those are critical. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're not tuning in, you know, every other week to East Hampton School Board, you might not know that, you know, they have X, Y, Z capital project on the agenda, you know, and then you take your concern to a regular meeting, you know, but if you don't understand where they're yeah. where they're looking at those numbers, they dig into those numbers. Exactly. There's, so an unspoken, an there's an unspoken sentiment among a lot of uh, elected officials, I think, that they could get a whole lot more done if it wasn't for the pesky public <laughs> right, having reporters. To, to, to meddle and, and be in the way and ask <laughs> questions. And, uh, and, and I think that underscores uh, why I think it's important to, uh, Denise, I do think you were fighting a battle there. And I think, I think that's yeah. an important battle it's to fight, constant. absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It really is. And, and uh, it just, again, I think emphasizes why it's important. No question. Well, the meddling and the discussions can lead to growth and change within a piece of legislation. So sure. Better anyway. legislation. It's what public business is, is supposed to be. Yeah, it's the public's business. Yeah, absolutely. It's public's business, the public's money. It has Abs to be done in public. And, you know, absolutely. If they don't uh, like it, that's just too bad. <laughs> this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group, as is our panelist, Catherine Manu, who is the publisher of the Express News Group. Chrissy Sampson, Deputy Managing Editor at the East Hampton Star, and Letty, <laughs> who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Uh, so, folks, we have a weather weekend. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I wonder if when we have severe weather, of any kind, we see it now through the prism of climate change. And I and I feel like that's uh, justified, but um, Georgie, it, it leads into the conversation. We started a, a series this week that we're really excited about uh, that focuses on climate change on the East End. And, and that's a topic we've been wanting to dive into uh, a little more deeply, but talk a little bit about uh, the project that, we're, that we began this week. Yeah, so we started a series this week titled The Rising Tide, and it's in our resident section. And Michelle Traring, our associate editor, is going to be quarterbacking this series. It will be a monthly feature that digs into climate change issues um, through the lens of what the impact will be locally um, on East End homeowners and the community at large. Um, this week, Michelle gives a nice overview of kind of where things stand locally. Um, she speaks with East Hampton Town Supervisor Peter Vinskoyak, Southampton Supervisor Jay Schneiderman, as well as officials from Sag Harbor Village, the Nature Conservancy, Drawn Down East End, um, and others. And 
the picture is, you know, kind of grim, <laughs> um, you know, climate change is, you know, inevitable um, as our rising waters, um, migration of wetlands, invasive species coming and threatening our local ecology as a result. Um, and Alison Bronco, the acting director of the Nature Conservancy, um, talks to Michelle a little bit about kind of like the two spokes of how we deal with this locally. There's climate adaptation where it's basically like putting sand on the beach to push back the tide and then, you know, mitigation, which is like, how do we behave proactively as local governments and as individuals to you know, make climate change not as quite as large of a disaster as it will be locally. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of this runaway train, um, which is one of the reasons we wanted to do this. Like Joe said, we've wanted to kind of dig into climate change um, a little bit more earnestly. And, you know, then COVID happens and um, we've been very much focused on the pandemic. And so now we've just decided that this is the time and we're going to do it. And I, I encourage people to check out this first piece that Michelle put together. It's, um, you know, really in-depth look on where things stand. And um, next month we are going to be looking at what other coastal communities have done um, in terms of residential zoning and development um, that responds to climate change. So I'm really excited about this. Um, some of the pieces that we want to do in the series um, aren't going to be as broad based will be, you know, a little bit more like user friendly, like, hey, I want to buy an electric car. How do I outfit my house appropriately? Um, you know, a little bit more digestible and, you know, real world advice that we can give to residents on how they can be a part of solutions. You know, Georgie, I, I applaud you guys for taking this on. Yeah. And, you know, Back when I remember that the Express magazine did a piece focusing on Montauk in like, I think, 2017, after those Hamlet studies reached, you know, their conclusions. And I would be really interested to check in with those folks in Montauk, you know, have Michelle check in with those folks in Montauk to see if their opinions have changed or if their circumstances are different or what they're seeing. Yeah, yeah, so it's love actually to read that interesting piece. you bring that up because that was one of the impetuses, that piece um, for us doing this, because that piece actually came out in the Express magazine that debuted in March 2020. <laughs> it's the Express magazine that basically nobody saw. And it was such a fabulous package that Michelle put together. Our, our minds were elsewhere at that. Yeah, yeah and yeah. nobody read it. <laughs> so, yeah. We Study is really, really interesting, um, you know, in Montauk, you know, where East Hampton Town was being really proactive and talking about, you know, basically coastal retreat and, you know, these really, you know, big ideas. And of course, the response was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I wonder a, a if hotel, that's the response. <laughs> a hotel owner, like, you know, losing six inches of beach a year or, you know, whatever it might be. I just made that up out of my head. <laughs> Full disclosure. Um, not that I ever make stuff up otherwise. But, um, <laughs> we, no, really you know, I'm, I'm curious, Denise and Chrissy, both of you, um, local officials talk about the issue of climate change a lot, but I don't know that there's really been a lot of substantive conversation about response to it and, and uh, things that actually need to be done uh, to prepare and, and to respond to it. Am I wrong about that? Am I being unfair by saying that? Well, uh, you, should I go first? Sure. <laughs> I, I, don't, yeah. I, I mean, I, I in Riverhead, um, not that long ago, there were uh, members of the town board who straight up said they did not believe in climate change. Like uh -huh. this is within the last decade. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, it's not really spoken about too much, um, but, you know, Riverhead, uh, when you look at the inundation maps, downtown Riverhead, uh, and a large part of the shoreline, actually, but downtown where we're building all kinds of buildings are, is, is due to be inundated with water. I mean, you know, it's due to be inundated with water. So um, the supervisor, the current supervisor, when she took office, um, one of the first things she said she did was uh, got in touch with through Lee Zeldin, the Army Corps of Engineers, and they have they came and they have started um, a study to look at, you know, where things stand, where they will stand and 
what the town might be able to do about it. But, um, you know, we talk about we don't have parking in downtown Riverhead. It could be it could be much worse than that. The developer that met with the town board the other day, what they were asking him or a, one member asked him if he could put uh, parking on, you know, underneath his building. And um, the he said, well, no, because the depth we did test holes and the depth to water table there is two feet. Mm-hmm. You know, oh my gosh. wow. So you know, yeah. these buildings are being put on pilings and, you know, I mean, they're taking the steps they deem necessary to keep them safe with the rising tide. But this is not something you can just ignore. And unfortunately, you know, I think in general, we've ignored it. Uh, certainly locally, it's it's been pretty much ignored. And, and bravo to you for taking this on as a series. That looks I just pulled it up. It looks like a great article. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, I'm really proud of the the, the yeah. first article Michelle did. I, you know, knew it would be terrific, and really looking forward to the series in general. Um, there's so much to talk about there, and, and we've talked about the fact that uh, it's going to be the main topic of conversation for the next ten yeah. ten years, probably, sure. uh, as we start to prep for that. Uh, before we end the show this week, Bill, I want to talk real briefly about: Can we send a message to people to stop? leaving your keys and your key fobs <laughs> in your cars. Oh my God. Wallets I mean, too. Please stop doing that. Um, Southampton Village Police this week took an unusual step, didn't they, Bill? They did. They they went around in the residential neighborhoods and they and they shook car handles to see if they were unlocked. And um, and surprise, surprise, a lot of them were. They went door to door and they knocked on doors. Um, and they told people, you know, you're you're at risk of having your car stolen because it's unlocked and your key fob or your keys are, are in the car. They also put up um, uh, those those message sign boards on uh, County Road 39 and, and on North Sea Road, um, you know, warning people. So so there are these car rings and I don't use that term lightly that are targeting Southampton and the South Shore, and they're and they're coming out, and they know it's easy pickings because this is people not aren't locking their doors. This and they're is coming. not a theoretical threat. It's it is no, it's, on it, an almost daily basis. It, it, I mean, at least fifty cars, I think, in the last year that we've reported, and probably more. And and they come out in the middle wow. of the night, and they find these unlocked cars. And and they jump in them, and they and they and they steal them, and and it's not only a property issue. They're trying to get back to New Jersey um, before before people notice the cars are stolen, report them stolen, so that they show up on the you know the the computer systems or or whatever. So they're trying to so they're going at high rates of speed, um, sometimes being chased by the police all across Long Island and into New Jersey, and creating safety issues and. Um, you know, and then it's also, you know, property. If you get the car back, if you don't, I mean, you know, it's an insurance issue and, and all that. I, I don't I don't understand it. And I, I joke, but my car is locked. It's in my garage, which is locked. My garage is, is behind my my gate, my gate, my fenced in yard gate. You know, I mean, I, I don't understand. Um, and you have but, a Porsche, but, right, Phil? I do have a Porsche. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It doesn't have you know, wheels, but it has a Porsche. Um, what I think is, I, I, I want to just send a tip out to people who own high-end SUVs. In case you're not aware of this, your your mirrors fold in when you take your key fob with you and go into the house. Thieves know that, so they just drive past your driveway. And if your mirrors are out, they know your fob is in your car. You're gonna lose your vehicle. I, I just. Well, now you've just now you've service. just tipped off the thieves. Yeah, well, well, I think they, they, already, they already know that. I yeah. think they know they it may have been ahead of the curve on that. Really? <laughs> we are out of time, folks. But I really thought it was important to get that public okay. service message out there to people. Lock your cars. Uh, thank you to Denise Civiletti, to Chrissy Sampson, and to Catherine Manu for joining us this week. Thank you, guys. Very much appreciate it. Uh, And thank you, as always, to my co-host, Bill Sutton. I'm Joe Shaw. Join us next week again for Behind the Headlines. Thanks for being here.